But great to have everyone here. Now, if we've never met before, my name's James. I'm one of the pastors here at BRBC. And we're a church that loves Jesus together. And we want to help others to do the same. We are all about Jesus. And that's why you're going to hear a lot about Jesus this morning when you're with us. Would you all like to stand as we read God's word together? The reading is taken from the second book of Thessalonians, uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be back with you, and good morning to everyone who's watching on the live stream with us. Good to have you here as well. Um, yeah, first time being up here since six months, since I've had you all in my living room. It's been a joy and a delight having you there, but it's good to be together this morning, and we are going to be camping out right there in Second Thessalonians this morning. But as we begin, um, I was reading that over the past five to ten years, there's been sort of a hot topic in psychology and sociology, and that has been the concept of resilience. Even before COVID hit, we lived in an age of anxiety, when life was running at a very fast pace, with all the pressure of raising a family, maintaining a career, just keeping up. And the ability to cope in that environment, and even flourish, many pointed to the concept of resilience. To some, resilience is a magical drug personality trait, something that can sort of heal all wounds and right all wrongs. Psychologists define resilience as, quote, that ineffable quality that some people have when they're knocked down by life, they're able to come back stronger than ever. Rather than letting failure overcome them and drain their resolve, they find a way to rise from the ashes, re-resilience. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Netflix documentary, Planet Earth, and its many iterations, Blue Planet or Our Planet. Um, Emily and I have been watching these a lot recently, and we've been enthralled by them. 
And you watch these programs and you think, surely that creature doesn't live on Earth. Like, I've never even heard of that thing. What is that? Or if you're like me, you're like, oh yeah, there's whales. I forgot about that the whales even existed. Surely I can't be the only one when watching those shows that that happens. And it's mesmerizing, isn't it, to watch these shows. And we're given a glimpse at sort of how the environment we've created has become more hostile to these plants and these animals, and yet they have this resilience. There's a resi resiliency there. And in, partic in particular, in the forest episode we were watching, we saw how at the end of the summer, when the weather is extremely hot, forest fires are very, very regular with the rising temperatures. And in, they really pull on your heartstrings, these documentaries, don't they? They show you all these beautiful birds, and these little newts, all these little scurrying animals. And then they kind of say, oh. And then there's these forest fires that just wipe out everything. Everything is destroyed, and this is the end. However, of course, there's always this time lapse, isn't there? And David Edinburgh's voice comes over the time lapse, and he says this. He says, with only a few months, flowers and tree seedlings will rise from the soil. Many would not have germinated had they not received this, quote, baptism of fire. And the older, well-established redwood, redwoods survive, protected by their thick, fire-resistant bark. This natural resilience is essential to the continued health of our forests. Despite the baptism of fire, the harsh temperatures, forests are resilient. Trees have developed this fire-resistant bark, and they grow despite destruction, resilience. Well, today we come to the church in the first century in the city of Thessalonica, who are living in a very hostile environment. And the social pressure and the social temperature is rising dramatically against those who proclaim that Jesus really is Lord. We were reminded last week, weren't we, that the sort of the birth story of this young church can be found in Acts 17. And this church we saw was so enthusiastic in their reception of the gospel that it sort of made quite a ripple in their communities, so much so that mobs were formed, people were dragged out of their homes and beaten and taken from. And apparently here in 2 Thessalonians, that has continued. And so here the Apostle Paul, I think, is writing then this letter to establish their gospel resiliency. And that is the letter we have open today. And we get to sort of peer in on their mail a bit. So the question is, what makes Christians resilient under pressure and opposition? Do we just need fire-resistant bark? Or is there something more we need? Because opposition, pressure, persecution against Christians has not ceased much to our surprise. In just May of 2019, the BBC posted an article of, after research done under Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt about the rise in Christian persecutions are, quote, at near genocide levels. That report came out just two weeks after the bombings of three churches in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, if you remember that event. And as a church, we support a mission called Open Doors, which is all about educating and raising awareness of the persecuted church. And it updates on their website almost daily with things going on and things to pray for. Christian persecution is not a thing of the past. But Peter, I can hear you say, I live in Suffolk. <laughs> I don't live in Pakistan. What does this have to do with me? Yes, you're right. We do live in a privileged area, in a context which is much less hostile to the gospel 
and is fairly friendly to the claims of Jesus. However, while we might not be in immediate physical danger as we sit here this morning, we do still face opposition. And we do face a temptation to deny our love for Jesus and our commitment to him all the time. In 2019, last year, the Barna Group, which is a group of researchers, published a book called Faith for Exiles, Living in Digital Babylon. Now, surprisingly, the research group found that people of my generation, millennials, are leaving the church at record pace, and iGen and those for younger are modeling even faster. And when they say what has really changed in the past decade is we are undergoing an experiment on a global scale called the digital revolution. Opposition to the gospel is no longer tied to just over there, over here. We are all connected globally. Opposition, not something that's way over there, but it's in our pockets as well. There's this immense pressure to conform. And the digital revolution is disrupting all parts of society and our faith as well. Add to that a sort of a growing animosity to Christianity in the West. You can feel a bit tired, disheartened, and just wonder, probably like the Thessalonians, are we on the losing team here? What is going on? So in the face of this pressure, this opposition, at whatever level and whatever form, what makes Christians resilient? How do we raise our kids with this faithful Christian resiliency? Well, today Paul is going to uh, give the Thessalonian Christians a way of seeing their past sufferings, their future hope, and their present reality that builds up resiliency. A way of seeing their past, their future, and their present. So we're going to look at their past. So would you read again verses 3 to 5 with me? In verse 3 it says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, and for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering. So Paul begins this section after the introduction we looked at last week. That's verses 1 and 2. And he gives this grand thanksgiving, and he gives this encouragement to the Thessalonian believers. And he, he commends them. As the, as the Thessalonians look back at the fog of uncertainty, of worry, of their past experiences... Paul kind of stands them up. He brushes them off with a commendation. And we see that Paul commends them for three things. That their faith is growing abundantly. That their love for one another is increasing. And in verse 4, their steadfastness in all the persecutions and afflictions they are enduring. Now, we've heard this triad before. You might know it even if you hadn't been with us when we looked at 1 Thessalonians but in 1 Thessalonians, he says the same three things, basically. He says, I remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope. In the midst of opposition and the failure of defeat, what we need is someone from the outside to come and speak into our lives a note of encouragement and commendation. Here, Paul even says in verse 4, I'm boasting about you to the other churches. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul coming and saying, Church of Bradfield and Ruffham, I am boasting about you. This is what he says to these Thessalonian Christians. 
Why? Why is he boasting? Is it because they have a bigger budget or a larger building or a refurbed building or a new strategy? No. No, because of your faith, your love for one another, and your steadfastness. What makes the Apostle Paul boast and give these accolades is what every single one of us is called into, a life of faith, love, and hope. So as we look at the church under pressure, it looks small, it looks weak, and yet underneath, the treasure of the gospel is safeguarded in faith, in our love for one another, and in our steadfast hope. You know, as a, as a church, as a culture, even as a pastor, I don't think we do all that good of a job of encouraging and commending one another. You know, it's much more common to deal in criticisms and expectations which have the rightful place, but I think we actually forget the power of commending. We're all for it. We just forget the untapped power it has. Maybe we have a wrong notion that, oh, if you encourage people too much, they're going to get a giant head. Or, you know, I'm in this sort of modern life, we're all trying to perform well, and if I start encouraging people and raising them up, I'm just afraid of how low I am on the bar. Or maybe we just think, you know, encouragement's great, but it's not that useful. <laughs> What's useful is much more pragmatic. Let's just get down to the facts, tell us what we need to do, how we need to improve, how we need to change. No one's against it, but is it really that useful? But I would say that we know that that's not the case from our own lives. Think about the times in life where you felt the most wind in your sails, when you've been most effective and free to pursue the things of God. I would guess that in most cases that follows on the heels of significant encouragement. Under pressure, we need encouragement to build up our resilience to opposition and difficulty. And so for all of us here, you have a very unique calling to build up the resilience of one another. As you encourage and as you are encouraged, something really seriously significant is going on. Don't downplay that. So notice and search for how you see Jesus' love and truth in one another and then make it public. As Paul says in Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Commend one another. And even in verse 5, as we see, even in hardship. Take a look at verse 5 again. It says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom, for which you also are suffering. So here we see Paul not only highlights the good things, but also the difficult things. Paul gives us evidence that this church is considered worthy of the kingdom of God. But the question is, what is he talking about? What is the evidence exactly? It's kind of written somewhat cryptically. Some scholars suggest that this evidence that Paul's talking about in verse 5 references their own perseverance and their own steadfastness. Now, what, no doubt that that is an evidence. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to point out. I think what Paul's referring to of the evidence of being counted worthy of the kingdom is the very suffering itself. The evidence of being counted worthy of the kingdom of God is the suffering itself. You have to notice that in this time, and Paul was writing into a culture of shame and honor. And for the Thessalonians, being afflicted, persecuted, ostracized, outcast, opposed, 
being singled out in their community was a deeply shameful thing. But what I think Paul's doing is he's flipping the script here. The sufferings that you are enduring are not a badge of shame. They are a badge of honor because it shows that you are in the community of Christ. You are in the community of the kingdom. I think we've probably kind of lost the expectation in sort of the modern Western culture we live in that Jesus calls us to pick up our crosses. Many of us come with the expectation that when you come to Jesus, it's about an escape from suffering. When in reality, for many of us, it's an invitation to suffering. Come, pick up your cross. And even from the very beginning of the church, there's this deeply ingrained assumption that Christ's followers would walk in his footsteps. In fact, the early church rejoiced when they went through sufferings, that they were able to participate with Jesus in his sufferings. Let me just give you examples. In Acts 5, we read that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Can you imagine that? Next time your boss makes a jab at you, I can't believe you, you believe in those silly things, kind of counts you off, you go, yes, I get to rejoice and I, that I was counted worthy of sharing in the disgrace of the name of Jesus. This is how the early Christians thought about it. The apostle Peter writes to another suffering church. He says, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so, you, so that you may be overjoyed at his coming. Paul writes to the Philippians, oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Then lastly, in Acts 14, I love this, Paul sort of setting up churches in Acts 14 and He's setting up churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and he sort of gives them a discipleship course for all the church leaders, sort of a, a seminary 101 from Paul. And we read this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made disciples, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. What are the two things that Paul says in seminary? Continue to encourage them in the gospel and know that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. And here in Thessalonians, Paul is helping these Thessalonians to see that any sort of pressure, opposition, any affliction is not a cause of shame, but of honor. This is the evidence that God has considered you worthy of bearing them so that the grace and the mercy of Jesus might be shown. In the face of opposition and pressure, he commends this church. Their resilience is celebrated and their shame is turned into honor. But Paul moves from what has happened, and he moves to looking forward to the future. So let's read verses 6 to 10 again. Let's read that together. In verse 6, it says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Now in these verses we're given a simultaneously dazzling and terrifying picture of Jesus when he returns. And we see in the future, when Jesus returns, the afflicted church will be vindicated. 
Now, as you read this, and as modern readers read this, we kind of recoil from these verses a bit, don't we? It sounds quite harsh, sounds quite unloving. But as we go through this, I want to help us, I want us to think and keep in mind that for Paul, these verses that he's writing, by writing these verses, he's trying to comfort the Thessalonian church in these verses. As Paul says in verse 7, so that you might be granted relief. So to put it really simply, there's an expiration date on the pain you're suffering for wearing the Jesus jersey. There's an expiration date on the pain that they are suffering for wearing the Jesus jersey. You see, the world is upside down at the moment. Evil and destructive people and plots rise to the top, and the faith and vulnerable are crushed underneath. And in these verses, we're given a picture of Jesus returning and turning things right side up. It means a glorious relief and joy for some, and punishment and eternal destruction for others. Now, it's worth mentioning at this point that the Bible uses a host of different metaphors when speaking about those who don't follow Jesus. The Bible uses the imagery of lost sheep that the, that the shepherd seeks out. The Bible uses imagery of those who are enslaved, looking for a liberating savior to set them free. And here, as well as Romans and other places in the Bible, the Bible uses imagery of rebellious enemies of God who make life hard for God's people and reject him completely. So what I think is in the same way that our heart is meant to swell with the thought of the compassionate shepherd seeking out the one lost sheep and dying for that sheep, in the same way, your heart is meant to shudder at the thought of Jesus bringing vengeance on all those who do harm to his sheep. One day, there will be a reversal of the way that things are, and real justice will come. God is not disinterested in setting things right. He's dead set on establishing justice. Let me bring this down a bit. Think of your closest relationships, your family, your spouse, your children. Now consider your response to someone who's actively seeking their harm. I'd imagine one of those responses would be anger and vengeance. We wouldn't consider that to be unloving. What we would consider to be unloving, just go, yeah, do whatever you want with them. That's fine. Absolutely, go for it. Vengeance is the correct response. However, in Romans 12, we're told by Paul, beloved, never Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For as written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, if we were given the judge's seat, I'd imagine our emotions would run the show. We would deal justice unfairly and without limit. But we can look forward to a true and righteous judge who will take care of suffering, evil, and darkness. The Bible speaks of God as one who will not allow those things into his new world. and He will not allow those things to go unchecked. But the Bible also speaks about God as being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In short, he doesn't have a short fuse. He doesn't lose control. So how does that work? We'll take a look at verse 9 and 10 again. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. We see these two eventualities, one of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and one of shining glory and wonder coming near to the presence of God. Now, what is the difference between these two, between the Thessalonians and their accusers and oppressors? 
we see at the very end of verse 10, because our testimony to you was believed. The difference between those who are cast out from the presence and those who glow with joy when they see Jesus is whether or not they believe and trust in the gospel, whether or not they know and love Jesus. And notice it's not about tallying things up or whether you're good or bad or there's some checklist in the sky. It's deeply relational. The punishment is even relational. Away from the Lord or rejoice when you see the Lord. God's righteousness is coming into the world and all of us stand condemned, yet there's safety in the words of the gospel, the testimony that Paul brings to this church. You see Jesus come as the man who did not stand condemned, but was just and lived God's kingdom reign here on earth. He was completely justified. He brought peace into storms. He healed mangled bodies. He brought forgiveness to guilt-ridden hearts. He was spat spat upon and shamed He turned his cheek and submitted himself to suffering for you and for me. And he hung upon a cross to absorb our judgment so that we would be counted right. Why? Why would he do that? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What joy? What joy was it? We see the joy in verse 10 in 2 Thessalonians that when he returns and he sees his church face, to face, and our faces will glow. With the church of Thessalonica, we will stand marveling at the sight of Jesus. We will be with him, and he will do away with darkness, pain, affliction for his beloved people. So why doesn't he come now? (laughs) Why does he come? What's holding him back from the ultimate joy of being fully united with his church, his deepest desire? We're told in 1 Peter that he is patient, not wanting any to perish. If you're listening this morning and you don't know the grace of Jesus, you are the reason why he has not come back yet. God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and he's saying, come, trust me. When I come, be excited for my coming. You are invited. For the Thessalonians, knowing that this reward is coming, that there was an expiration date on their pain, meant they could endure, that they would be resilient disciples of Jesus who could hope in his return. They were facing forward. But now finally, Paul unleashes spiritual power into their present life. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Starting in verse 11, it says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul strengthens their resiliency under affliction with a prayer, an electricity line to God's power. And it's a prayer of supplication, a prayer that God would supply all of the needs to the Thessalonians. And I love what Paul asks for here. He says, may God fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Not just the well-thought-out strategic plans for good, not just that's significant public works of faith, but every and all resolve for good and every work of faith. May God empower and provide all you need, Paul says, even the smallest inkling and resolve to live faithfully. May he empower that in your life. Paul roots their resiliency in their lives and the present power of God in them. 
In verse 12, he asked this, we see that he asked this request according to the grace of Jesus. Paul is banking on the radical graciousness of God to provide. He knows that the gracious gift of God's power is not just dispensed in the past at Calvary, but it is also the fuel and the life for the church in the present as well. Paul's getting these Thessalonians to think that their lives are arenas, stadiums to see God's work and power in them. All that to say, as you think about your life today, all things you have to do, the career you've been placed in, the family you've been given to lead, the children you've been given to disciple, the resources you have at your fingertips, that is an arena to see the power of God unleashed in your life by his grace. So we come to our Father and we ask, Lord, I have this small inkling of resolve for good. Can you work with it? Lord, I feel my faith feels weak, but according to your grace, would you help me find peace amidst the storm? So a question for you as we take things to to its end. Can I ask you, do you have any resolve for good? Any inklings for the kingdom? Because God wants to fulfill those resolves and enable every work of faith by his power in our lives. So as we bring it to a close, you might be wondering, what does this mean for my life? This whole concept of resilience and opposition and affliction, it feels burdensome or it's unlikely that God can make me into a resilient disciple in my circumstance. It just feels distant from me. Or is our church really here in the middle of the fields an outpost of the kingdom of God? Really, what does it look like to to resist under pressure and to hold fast to the word of truth? Well, Let me give you an example. One man who is known for his gospel resiliency at the unique crossroads of his life is a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, many of you will know about his life, or at least you've heard me quote him many a time, time and time again. And Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran, Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II. He was ferociously committed to God's word, and he knew what it meant to be a resilient disciple of Jesus. Even when his own German church began supporting Hitler, he was formative in creating a formation of dissenting churches called the Confessing Church. He was fully convinced that God's grace was all-sufficient and that there was an actual cost to following Jesus. He went even as far as participating in a plot to assassinate Hitler, which did end up failing. He was imprisoned and held in Tegel Prison in Berlin. And upon discovery of this plot... Hitler ordered his hanging in a fury of anger. Bonhoeffer conducted his last service for the prisoners that Sunday in the prison after be, before being transferred to the Flossenburg concentration camp where he was hung on the 9th of April, 1945, just two weeks before U.S. forces would liberate that camp. Now Bonhoeffer's life stands as a testament of the grace of God in the call of discipleship. His biography is a New York Times bestseller, not to mention his own writings, which are well-known and read. But while we might rightly honor and celebrate and study his life along with many others like him, there's this tendency to kind of take him and place him in the category of a Christian hero far above our own grasp here in Bradfield and Ruffham. Amazing man to emulate, but it feels distant, feels out of our grasp. That sort of resiliency is sort of reserved for the super-Christians. 
Which is why I want to conclude by telling you about Franz Jagerstadter. Franz, what a name, Franz Jagerstadter. If you've never heard of him, that's precisely the point. Last year, director Terrence Malick released a movie entitled A Hidden Life, documenting Jagerstadter's life. And I can't recommend this movie highly enough. The movie is unlike any other World War II movie I've ever seen, mostly because it's stunningly beautiful. It's a beautiful film. And there are no battle scenes in this film, and the character of Hitler doesn't even make an appearance in the film. So why is it a World War II film? Well, Franz was an Austrian farmer living in his pastoral home during the rise of the Third Reich. And in the film, Franz does military service for the Austrian uh, military at a base far away from the war in a beautiful idyllic place by a lake. He never saw combat, and soon he just goes home back to his happy family. But in Austria, as he comes back, the adulation for Hitler is rising, and it creeps into their small village. Soon people are greeting themselves with Heil Hitler, and Franz realizes that he cannot swear oath to Hitler. And soon his family become pariahs in their small village, shunned by most of their neighbors. Love of country, they say, means love of Hitler. And everyone around them, even Franz's mother, is willing to accept this. It's inevitable. Hitler, they say, only wants to help his country and his people. He does what he has to do. An old man from the village proclaims in town square, he was not content to watch his nation in a state of collapse. He derides foreigners who turned their homeland into Babylon. How could anyone object to Hitler who loves his home country? Now, most of the film is sort of a three-hour runtime devoted to this couple's wrestling with Franz's conviction. And the film, Swearing Allegiance to Hitler, is frequently sort of characterized by bending the knee to an antichrist, which we'll see later in 2 Thessalonians. But in this movie, Franz's faith, it is not showy. And he is horrified as he consults even the village priests who do not condemn the Third Reich. The priests call them heroes and even saints, he says, the way the clergy speak about those who engage in Third Reich's military autocracies. I think this movie is much more relatable. Frequently throughout the movie, you're saying, come on, just, just swear oath to Hitler and serve in the hospital. It's not that hard. And throughout the film, you are actually pulled along in this fight for gospel resiliency. This is much more relatable. Eventually, Franz ends up in the same prison in Berlin as Bonhoeffer, and he suffers the same fate. And until 1964, when someone uncovered a not well-known biography, no one knew about Franz Jagerstadter, which is why I think Franz strikes me in some ways as a necessary corrective to our, our valorization of figures like Bonhoeffer or Corey Ten Boom. Both of them rightly praised and admired and lauded for their attempts to take down Hitler and save Jews from being sent to camps. But it is in our nature to love the story of a person who did great things, who saved lives, who wrote books, who stood against a dictator who tried to wipe out millions. But it is less common for us to celebrate a man who threw away a comfortable life and simply refused to do what he knew he could not and paid for it with his life. This is Christian resilience without recognition. Christian resilience without the drama. It is the hidden life of faith, which is what most of us are called to. 
You might think that this call of Paul and Thessalonians to remain steadfast amidst persecutions are only for the select few who have platforms to lead the church in difficult places. But we don't know of any of the names of those in Thessalonica besides Jason. We don't know exactly what their affliction looked like or how God supplied them with his grace. But we do hold this letter to them 2,000 years ago, knowing that God's grace was sufficient. His power is enough in their weakness so that you and I here 2,000 years later might know his grace. So you are called, you are invited to become resilient disciples of Jesus to stand for his gospel in all the intricacies of your life where God has placed you. And when we don't know how to do that, we ask for help, that God may fulfill every good resolve and every work of faith by his power. As we end, we hear Jesus' words to us. When they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about what you should say to defend yourself. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. May we know his grace and his power in our present. May we know his faithfulness in our past. And may we look forward to the future coming of Jesus when our faces will glow and his joy will be complete. So would you pray with me and pray into that with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just want to ask for your help. Lord, we know that this life you've prepared for us, um, we cannot do it in our own strength, in our own power. Resiliency is just our own um, futile attempts to try and pick ourselves up, but we do realize that you give us a hope, a steadfastness, a life of faith and love that cultivates this resiliency. We want to ask that you would watch over um, those of us who are parenting our children as we think about how we raise them to know and love Jesus. We ask you to help us as we navigate a new and constantly transforming world in front of us as we are ushered into a sort of digital Babylon. Lord, we also pray for our brothers and sisters across the world who know this um, affliction acutely, who are pulled out of their homes, who are persecuted, who cannot meet together like this. We ask you to strengthen them. Would you fulfill every good resolve that they have And every good work of faith would you empower. Lord, we ask that you would make us into a people who are expectant for your return. We look forward to when you come and our faces will glow with joy. So now as we come and as we reflect on these words, we ask to tune our hearts to delight in you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. We've come to the end of our time together. And so as we go, we're going to use the one-way system to go out that door and then out to our cars. But as we go, hear the words that Paul says to the Thessalonian church that echo in our ears. Now, may God make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every good resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace, saints. Good to be with you.